0: I am your host, Mark McBride-Wright, founder and managing director of Equal Engineers, and I believe that every engineer has a story to tell. The Equal Engineers podcast uncovers the diversity story behind leading engineers and those working with the profession championing change. Hear from leaders, academics, entrepreneurs, and agents of change, truly transforming the understanding of who engineers are and what engineers do. Simon Blake, OBE, joined MHFA England as chief executive in October 2018, leading the organisation to achieve its vision of normalising society's attitudes and behaviours around mental health through training 1 in 10 of the population in mental health skills and awareness. He is chair of the Dying Matters campaign based at Hospices UK and the Support After Suicide Partnership based at the Samaritans. He is also a companion of the Chartered Management Institute. In 2020, he was named as a Global Diversity Leader and the 2021 Pride Power List. He is a writer, campaigner and trainer and was awarded an OBE for services to the voluntary sector and young people in 2011. He enjoys running, equestrian eventing and his dog. Simon, how are you? I'm very
1: good, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm great. Really, really delighted to finally get uh, some time in your busy schedule to uh, talk about what I think is something that's really, really important, not just for engineering, but any sector really to, to shine a light on, which is around the, the mental health of its of its workforce for the positive or the negative. And, you know, just hear about some of the great work that MHFE England are doing how people can can get involved. But in my podcast, I specifically also like to get to know the person behind the story um, to uncover the diversity story of the the individuals that are sharing their time with us. So we like to go back in the first section, look a bit about the history, look at the the, the personality, and then come back to the present day forward looking um, with what's what's happening in the future. with that in mind, I'd like to just take us back and find out a bit about a bit about Simon Blake. You know, where did you grow up? What was the young Simon like?
1: I grew up in Cornwall, in North Cornwall, by the sea, uh, in the in 1974. And what was the young Simon like? I guess I was uh, adventurous, uh, excitable at times, precocious. I was very, very outdoorsy. I loved being outdoors. I found school um, annoying, a little bit boring. And at times, I guess, didn't really understand what it was we were supposed to be doing. So primary school was, was amazing. We did lots of creative stuff and energetic stuff and learning in ways which really suited me yeah and the secondary school sort of 35 minutes on between you and learning your French and learning rote and reading books and all it just didn't it just didn't quite uh quite suit me and I guess then 16 to 18 got went to further education college and 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 fell back in love with learning again so yeah outside school I was very much about being outside, wanted to always be with animals, um, and then my learning sort of journey. I guess I was was an interesting one that primary suited me, and then that middle section, which may well, I guess, have been to do with with me and who I was uh, much more than it was about the experience of of, of you know, what was happening in the school at the time.
0: Okay, interesting. Interesting. So it's, it's very often people maybe fall out of love with things in their life, and then at some point later on in their journey fall back in love back with them. And it sound it it sounds like that might have been your relationship with education. Um and so what how, how would you describe your your school days then and that journey into your work in life?
1: Yeah. So if I just start at the the FE yeah, so going to FE college, I think I, l- I had learned by that point that there was an element of self-directed learning, which I really liked. I liked going wherever my brain, okay. yeah, was interesting, and and that for me was very much in the yeah the the social side of of life, the sci- sociology, the psychology's uh, yeah social geography, human geography, sort of part of well and, and and English. And I think so. I guess actually, what was happening in school, I hadn't really thought about this until you just asked the question was. I was being required to learn quite a lot of things that I didn't particularly like or find that interesting. And it was, of course, before the internet. And so you didn't just sort of wander through things, but that rigid structure, I think, I obviously found a little bit more difficult than perhaps I'd realised. I then... From, from further education onwards, really, it was accidental. I was the first person in my family to go to university. And I ended up at Cardiff University, because it had a good psychology course, because a friend was there, because I'd visited there. And so I could imagine what Cardiff looked like, you know, from, from being by in the fields and by the, the stream and all of those sorts of things going into a city had felt, I think, a little bit intimidating, but found Cardiff good fun, uh, had a great time, and was supposed to be an educational psychologist, but fell in love, uh, had an errant trip uh, to the States, uh, and, and of course, in the end, that all went wrong, as it was always going to, um, but I did then um, have the, the good fortune to get a job as a sex educator, uh, right. rather back to be an educational psychologist, which was the plan uh, and that just led to a series of very interesting jobs uh, which ultimately have led me to where I am now in terms of mental health.
0: Amazing. Can you just tell us a bit more then about what those various roles have been and and, and the, the, the sort of common thread that's gone through each of them?
1: Sure. So the first project was a sexual health project working with boys and young men. And so working in the South Wales valleys, where obviously there've been enormous change in terms of, of, of economic opportunities with the closing of the mines. Mm. And so really, even though it was a sexual health project, it was about masculinity, emotional intelligence, mental health, of which there were some conversations around sexually transmitted, infection, sex, etc. I then became an expert because there weren't very many people doing that work. So mm-hmm. got an role where I was training people uh, in working with boys and young men around sexual health masculinity. Then ran the Sex Education Forum, which is a consensus building organisation, which brought together uh, religious institutions, education institutions, health institutions and specialist organisations to try to build consensus about what we should be teaching, how and where. Okay. And from there, I then had a, a role which which was slightly wider than that at the National Children's Bureau, where it was really about addressing personal social health education for all children, but had some specialist roles within that as well. So volatile substance abuse was a particular focus area, uh, drug education. We had working with bereaved children, children with HIV, rural children. Wow. And, and within that and that environment we are all the time trying to work out how do we meet the needs of all children young people and what they need for health education development but also how do you meet the needs of particular groups of children whether that be children in residential care children who are being uh, fostered um, children from uh, black and as we call it the time minority ethnic communities and gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans children. so all the time trying to work out what is it that everybody needs, and then what mm-hmm. is it particular groups of children, young people need. Then I worked at Brooke, the young People's Sexual Health charity, and again, that sort of sense of making sure that we're providing sexual health services that met the needs of everybody but also met the needs of particular groups of. Young people, but also then the relationship between our well-being, our mental health, and our sexual choices was obviously Mm. part of the education. Went to the National Union of Students from Brook, where mental health, well-being, liberation uh, was a core part of 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 the student movement and of student. Before coming to Mental Health First Aid England, uh, three just over three years ago, and I guess running alongside that some non-executive trustee roles, the Black Health Agency, diversity role models, and latterly Stonewall and now with the support after suicide partnership, uh, which is supporting ensuring support for those who've been bereaved by suicide, and the dying matters campaign, which is a campaign trying to create open, honest conversations around death and dying. And I'm also lucky enough to uh to chair the International Advisory Board at Headspace. So you know Wow. Some really interesting um, uh, roles as, a, as a, a, a non-exec sort of trustee and advisor um, running alongside the, the work at Mental Health First Aid England.
0: So we've had people that I've spoken to people that have been interested in getting, you know, non-exec roles. Um, is it something that your approach to then going to apply for or be considered for once you get to a certain level? Or have you done some in your career, like proactive planning with those that you've joined? formally applying how does it work having that sort of concurrent side to your career alongside your your mainstream um profession
1: i think it's it, it varies but certainly i was advised very early on that it would make sense to actively apply for a role as a trustee of a charity and so looked for those opportunities to uh to secure roles so you sort of get the combination that you're proactively looking and then people knowing that you're looking and then mm. yeah there are adverts and there are search agencies for some there's you know if it's there's non-exec uh are there are agencies if you wanted to be a non-exec in a in a private company or a public company yeah. association so I think there's a number of ways in but if you're interested in in roles in the charity uh, and social enterprise sector the National Council for Voluntary Organisations. Would have information uh, okay. about that on it.
0: That is a very good resource that we can signpost to. Thank you for that. So you, you've you've that uh, it's it's all quite heavy stuff then that you're uh, that you're you're leading on the this the the weight that you can be carrying sometimes separating from personal life and professional life. It must be quite a burden sometimes where where the two sort of fuse in together. What do you do then to to have that headspace for yourself? What pastimes do you enjoy?
1: Just to go to to go back uh, one step from that, I think the thing which is always interesting about working in social justice or working in whether around areas of of, of justice and, and equality is that it's, it's it's exactly as you say, driven by passion and compassion. And I think my sense of all of this is my aim is to have a balanced life. Mm-hmm. People will often talk about a work-life balance. Yeah. And I think it's probably a bit of a, a, a sort of a, a false uh, a reality, really, because right. it suggests you've got work and life. And I think sometimes when you work in this area, you've got the combination yeah, of the two. Now, the, the challenge of that, of course, is to make sure that you don't wear being busy um, sort of as a badge and yes. that you, you do have to have that that place and space for yourself. So, My pastimes, I have a dog, um, a a Blue Staffordshire Terrier, uh, who um, requires a lot of of time and attention. (laughs) I also have a a horse and I um, do eventing, which also requires uh, a a lot of uh, time um, and attention. But they also both require me to be present. Yes. There's no sort of in-between and it is really a space where... I try, if I'm out walking the dog, not to take my phone uh, with me, or yes. at the very least not to be on the phone and to be looking around and to be present. And then when I'm riding, obviously, um, yeah, you have no choice but to concentrate on exactly what you're doing at that time. Um, and they're really important to me. And then I'm a reluctant runner.
0: A reluctant I runner. do
1: run, uh, and I sometimes enjoy it, but mostly I do it because. It's good for me. It gives you the chance to to just make sure that I'm outside getting fresh air and 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 I live on Clapham Common. So oh, okay. Common is a really nice, nice place to live.
0: Lovely. Yeah, nice, very nice circuit that is. Um, I like the idea of work-life balance, but actually instead it's about living a balanced life. I did some I did the Mental Health First Aid England instructor training course that I'd highly recommend to anyone listening to consider. And then within that, one of my favourite bits was um, the guest speakers who came in. There was one in particular that I remember called Shine Offline, and they spoke about uh, we live in such a connected world digitally. How can you disconnect from your digital life? And even simple things like having a box at your front door to put your phone in So that you create some rules, create some boundaries between having a healthy relationship for having a healthy relationship with, with technology, Um, and I guess it's hard to do now. The more interconnected we get. In fact, I did my training before the pandemic, so it's even harder to disconnect digitally when actually we have to use these devices to 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 be connected for for our work.
1: Yeah, and I. At the beginning of the pandemic, we talked a lot about staying connected. And mm. I think it only took a few weeks to realise that actually we needed to concentrate as much on disconnecting yes. as on connecting. And for people working at home uh, throughout the pandemic, simple things like making sure that you pack your computer away at the end of the day, rather than have it winking at you on the kitchen table yes. or on the side of, uh, 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 in, in the bedroom, is really important and particularly then at weekends and, and when you to do it. So those those acts of moving things away, mm-hmm. you know, turning off notifications on our phones so that we only look at our phone when we want to see it rather than look at it every time something pings at us. And of course, if you've got Twitter and Facebook and Teams and your email and uh WhatsApp and your text messaging and the phone, you've got a huge amount that yeah. can just be, be buzzing at you and, and our brains you know, need the chance to rest and if things are pinging at us all the time we don't get that so it is important to find ways to disconnect and you know whether that's challenging ourselves not to look at phones for the first half an hour uh, when we get up or the last hour and a half before bed or leaving our phones downstairs the challenge of course is that it's your camera it's your alarm clock and I, and I think that is something which I I increasingly find myself moving back to a position of, actually, I'm going to get an alarm clock. Yeah, I'm going to get a little camera in order to be able to take photos so that you're not relying on one device to do everything.
0: My son has become my alarm clock recently. He wakes up at uh, 7am. His light goes from red to green, green meaning you can make noise now and get up. And he shouts through the monitor, wakey, wakey, it's wakey up time. (laughs) So um, I've now been practicing better the having my phone in a different room on charge so it's not you know just there because I think even its presence near you is like a subconscious vacuum that sucks energy or well-being from you so what have been some of the key experiences who've shaped who you are
1: I guess the first and probably the most fundamental would be Being growing up gay in the 70s and and, and 80s and that even before I had words for or a language to describe it meant that there was definitely a sense of being slightly different and I think what that did at various points was put you into the um, people who were in the wrong side of the playground base, And from that, I learned that there are people, there is inequalities. I mean, this is all adult language rather than what I was processing age seven. Yeah. But, you yeah, know, there were people who would be bullied and there were people who would bully and there were people that would be nice. And, and that actually, there were there was some sense of unfairness. So I think yeah. I grew up with that sense of unfairness. And that's definitely filtered through. We also had a a special unit, as it was called, at our primary school, which was for children with Down syndrome. And part of our, uh, our education at school was also about understanding around discrimination and around disability and disability discrimination. And that was where I then did my work experience, which then led to doing some voluntary work in the charity sector, which... Ultimately, if you piece together the different bits, there was something about having done some voluntary work as a young person, yeah. having done some volunt- which led me to then do voluntary work when I was a student, which led me to be able to say that I had something useful to offer when it came to applying for jobs post-university, because yeah. I had a psychology degree which didn't lead you directly to, to a specific uh, vocation so that sort of sense of unfairness at an early age and and what we learned at school about discrimination definitely are things that have shaped me and then ultimately yeah as you you certainly through the sort of 80s and 90s yeah that sense of your own difference then creates a greater empathy mm-hmm. uh, with others uh who who may not fit uh you yeah, know within tight social norms you yeah, know and obviously yeah there's there's all sorts of progress in various ways nice. at the moment but my i guess my heart and my mind was open to difference to diversity and and that's certainly been you know incredibly yeah I'm grateful really really grateful for that because it would have been very easy i think to have, have had a, a shut down mind and okay. when i look at yeah, the injustices uh that there are in the world now and the things that i care deeply about a lot of that is about empathy and mm-hmm. about having a sense of empathy and understanding of of other people and their experiences. And yeah, if you look around at the moment, that's certainly something that in yeah. some we do with a bit more of.
0: I always remember attending a diversity talk um seven years ago now and one of the speakers said something that stuck with me and I still use it today, talking about equality being like a pendulum swing. And actually, when you swing too far forward in one direction, the privileged majority feel like there's been too much, you know, growth for underrepresented groups. And so it swings back. You get the backlash. You get the misconception that, you know, there's an agenda here. And I feel like we're in a backswing right now with certain communities um, with there having been too much equality. And I'm using air quotes here, given out. And even on the LGBT strand or the lgb strand in particular you know when you look through the 70s 80s 90s 90s, noughties tens and now the 20s how much even that's gone up and down and how much progress has been made even in the last 15 years let alone the 15 years prior to that i do wonder if the generation now coming up they are they are truly in a better place for um you know the the successes that stonewall have had and I feel like, I guess, being a gay man myself as well, I feel like I've been in that bridging generation as well with, um, I remember being, how old was I? I remember Labour coming in and uh, New Labour and then seeing signs around Section 28 um or it was called something different in scotland and just this this just this national discussion happening but not really making the connection that it was linked to who i innately knew i was the curiosity that i had i came out in 2003 <clears throat> and then i started uni in 2005 and i remember starting in 2005 and the day i met my now husband a boyfriend at the time Cherie blair was celebrating the civil partnership Reception for the Civil Partnership Act coming out. Now, when I did advanced higher French at school, I remember learning about France having this thing called Lupax, and it was some sort of legal recognition that same sex couples could have. And I remember being at high school thinking, oh, that's brilliant. I can speak French. I can move to France. If I get a boyfriend, I'll have like just settling for the fact that you can't get married. You can not even use the married word. There'd be no legal recognition. So I have, I, for my the pulse that I'm wave that I'm surfing, I feel I've literally just been on the side of progress where I haven't had to lose any time in terms of the legal status of of how I live my life, um, and I certainly don't 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 take that for granted. I think with the trans community, just now we're seeing an enlightenment having happened, but now a, a sort of pushback happening, and that intersection with gender and gender identity and for engineering in particular be interested to get your take on this for engineering in particular which is a male majority profession still where we're still trying to um, you know attract more women cisgendered women into the the profession you know how that plays out with with the trans communities it's it's a question we get asked a lot I run another organization called inter-engineering and we've got a lot of trans members through that and it's a you know being a male, being a cisgendered white male, trying to have a voice in that space, it, you know, do, do you have a voice in that space? Can you can you advocate? How 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 have you been handling the situation recently with um
1: well I think it's really important, isn't it, that all of us our are, are um allies are supportive Are vocal use our platforms and our voices to support equality and I really subscribe to the view that you know none of us are free until all of us are and yeah. that includes the people who have experienced the most legal freedoms the most economic freedom yeah the, the most of, of of everything yeah power the most privilege and yeah. and so yeah, making sure that we are speaking um, out because we know what happens when you don't. You mm-hmm. you you can you can't leave it only to people who are experiencing the oppression to stand up uh, 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 against it because the energy the the that is required in order to do that. And so we always need. You know, I always think of of progress as being a bit like a snowplow. You know mm-hmm. that you need. Mm-hmm. And enough pressure to be able to to move it through but i think we're always standing on the shoulders of the people that went before and yep. i remember so i'm just a bit before you where yeah i was involved in campaigning against the repeal at, for the repeal of section 28 uh, and for the equalizing um the age of consent mm. and and i went to the party uh, that celebrated when we had equalizing the age of consent. And there were two people who were older men who were who were dancing and just saying, we never thought we'd be legal, let yeah. alone uh you know, have that equal uh and 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 equal equality under the law. But of course what you've now got is there's equality under the law in a range of different places for a number of people but not everybody can realize that. Yeah, so, you know, whether that's uh, because of their home circumstances, or because of their school circumstances, or because yeah, that the reality is that culture hasn't caught up with with that legislation. So, yeah, the challenge that we have got now is, as always, it happens. Yeah, that that there is a moral panic about trans uh, people, mm-hmm. um, and that is a very loud uh, minority, uh, and the same fear stories that were said about gay men and about lesbians and about bi people are being said so yeah about toilets and about safety with children and 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 violence and of course yet yeah, what that does is is creates a backdrop against which you know some people uh will not then uh engage there's a, a very yeah. po- positions become polarised and whilst I yeah, absolutely, you know, we, we cannot debate, uh, uh, you know, this is not a, a debate in yeah. the way that's reported and we mustn't dehumanise uh, people. But one of the things which I think is really interesting is that you've often got people who are, absolutely understand the issues um, from one perspective and are very pro-trans uh, rights and people who absolutely oppose to trans rights. And then you've got a whole group of people in the middle who don't know very much, don't yes. understand very much, and and need to to learn and to to be supported to learn and to understand and to champion equality, and and that's really important in all areas of of, of progress, you know, and and, and even, yeah, whether that's around LGBT rights, whether that's around feminism, whether that's around uh, racial equality, we've got to find ways as Allies, are supporters of equality, to be able to have conversations which enable people to learn and to rethink and yeah. to, to to re-educate. Yeah, I was having a, a a conversation with somebody in my family the other day around people crossing the channel. Yeah, yeah, their their views were not ones which I would subscribe to. But in the end, yeah, I must say, imagine, you know, just imagine that you were in a situation where you thought that it was worth taking the risk of putting your children one under each arm and crossing the channel because your your choice is where you were. And I'm not saying that they've changed their mind, but they have at least imagined themselves into a scenario where they don't believe that it's the offer of a mobile phone or that there are (laughs) the fantasy of benefits or whatever it is. And And I think somehow if you're expecting... Yeah, uh, an asylum seeker to have that conversation. Yeah, you know, of course they shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is for all of us, and that is why it's all of us yeah. that, that need to be to be trying to change the dial.
0: I always say that to my uh clients where um we're supporting some employee resource groups, and they're maybe they're the first people that are um championing that change in their organization. They're going to be up against that friction that at that interface of that snowplow pushing through and really it depends on how informed the leaders have been with making that way for them easier with paving the way we always draw I love a good graph a bell-shaped curve 20 60, 20 rule you've got 20% an organization that are really positive they'll do everything they can to support inclusion without um, you know give their discretionary effort And 20% that are naysayers, they'll try and pull everything down. They're already polarized, set in their ways. And then the opportunity exists in that 60% in the middle. Now, that 20 split either side of that 60 curve isn't necessarily proportionately represented across an organization. It might be disproportionate in terms of the hierarchy and the power. So really, we're getting getting individuals to map out where that sits in their organization and in their personal lives gets them to think about, right, where can I best apply my energies through my um, advocacy and, and through my my fight for for social justice. Um, and one of the ways we've been doing that at Eco Engineers with trying to get the male majority, because we have, I think it's um 86% of the engineering profession are male. So there's a there's a huge skew there in terms of a workforce that may have grown up with the themes that you're describing, you're involved with at the beginning around masculinity, mental health, expectations of what it means to be a man, a macho type culture, and a workforce that's also familiar with safety, physical safety, looking out for one another. So I'm just really keen in, in the to hear more from you. In, in In your last three years, you've been chief executive at MHFA England. What changes have you seen in general towards mental health?
1: so mental health is definitely you know, something which people are wanting to talk about more and more and i think we've seen particularly through the pandemic that focus on well-being we've seen you know more connectivity at work in communities in friendship groups in in you know in neighborhoods and we are having more of a conversation yes you know, stigma still exists lack of access to services still exists there are some groups which yeah know are, are, are still um likely to experience um well more cultural restrictions on talking and of course you yeah, men you yeah, is is really yeah uh, one of those that's not to say that men don't like talking and individual men don't talk but actually the stereotypes of masculinity yeah. mean that it can be harder so i think what we're seeing really is that that slow progress which you often see and the pandemic has given a long jump to to really understanding about well-being and mental health there are still some parts of mental health mental illness which people will tend to talk less about we know that people might find it easier to talk about well-being than about depression or they might find it easier to talk about depression than around uh, schizophrenia um, or they might not think it's acceptable to talk about medication at work even if they talk about feeling you know low or, or having depression so I think we've mm-hmm. got all sorts of contradictions and parts where there's progress and overall there's a long way to go we've probably just started scratching the surface and of course one of those bits is is a recognition that we all have mental health yeah. you know all of brain all of us therefore have mental health and that when we talk about mental health if we think about it from an asset-based approach it's how do we how do we resource and 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 support ourselves to be able to do the best uh that we can how to manage the best that we can through you know as we muddle on uh, muddle on through our lives and we sometimes talk about mental health when we mean mental illness yeah i think Be mindful of the language that we use when we're talking about well-being, when we're talking about mental health, when we talk about mental illness and really understand what we're talking about. That doesn't mean we have to be experts, but if you and I are talking about mental health, let's make sure we know what it is that that we are talking about. So I think we are seeing progress, but the reality is that there is still too much stigma. There are still too many times when people don't know how to get support, they are worried about talking about mental health because of the impact it might have um on their job or on their role or within their friendship groups, and so yeah, we've got to keep on keep on having the conversation and and destigmatizing because until we destigmatize, yeah, we won't make the progress we need until we understand our own frame on the world, we won't have that empathy that we have around. Yeah, inequality around different perspectives and we need to get better at understanding how we can support our own mental health and that of others regardless of you know, uh, whether we have a clinical diagnosis or not there are things that all of us can do to, to support our well-being and our mental health.
0: Of course you know I'm a big believer in MHFA's strategy to train up one in ten of the UK adult population on mental health first aid Um, And our masculinity and engineering report from 2019 found that one in five engineers reported losing a work colleague to suicide, and a similar number had had suicidal ideation themselves. Um, So what can we change? What can we do to to change this? And I'd be interested to hear more about your progress on that aspiration of one in 10.
1: So First off, we, we are you know, moving. We're at 1 in 55 at the moment, uh, and that's moving since the beginning of the pandemic. We've trained well over 200,000 people. Wow. So there are a number of people that, uh, you know, significant number of people who are, you know, trained and understand and able to have those non-judgmental conversations and signposts to other forms of, of support. And then when you look at what can you do, you know, what we've seen in the construction industry is a Real significant uh, amount of energy and time and investment of resource in order to utilize conversations about mental health and utilize getting support. So, the Lighthouse Charity and the, mm-hmm. the helpline. And and so, I think the key bit is naming, exactly as you've just done with, you know, as you said in the report, and is, is naming that there is a problem mm-hmm. and then galvanizing support around the fact that that needs to change and then working out what it is. Uh, that does need to change and 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 then being in for the long haul you know this isn't going to be fixed with a three-month project or a six-month project it's about cultures within organizations so how how do I know if I came to work for you that you believe that my mental health is important how do I know that if I ask for support that it's going to be available how do I trust that yeah, it is going to be uh, in my best interest and in my employer's best interest for us to think about my mental health as part of my overall performance in the organisation. Hmm. And if I can build that trust, if I can create that culture, then of course, yeah, we can really start breaking down those stereotypes, breaking the silence which creates that challenge. And so yeah, what we know about construction and utilities companies and in financial services and in others is that what mental health first aiders can do is create that cultural revolution yeah mm. if you like and be champions for good mental health in the workplace so it goes beyond what the the first aid role is which yeah, that that's sort the of signpost it's the overall champions for for change and but that has leadership has to come from the top as well, it requires you know leadership from the top. It requires managers to be trained. It requires you know a level of awareness and cultural change across yes. the organization for mental health first aiders to be to be part of that.
0: When you go on the Health and Safety Executive's website, you can find guidance, and it's more than guidance. It's statutory requirements in terms of the number of physical first aiders that you need within your organization trained up. Relative to whatever size your 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 business is, um, do you see there being a need for that statutory requirement for mental health first aid?
1: So, we would like to have that statutory requirement, and we yeah we campaign for that statutory requirement, and we can keep on doing so. We've had lots of conversations with ministers, and I think at this stage there isn't the appetite for that but i believe absolutely firmly that it is a case of of when not if yeah and that when might be 3 years 5 years 10 years but at some point that that will become a reality and i'd like to think that that then becomes the the minimum yeah that yeah. actually people, yeah recognise that the more you do to create that culture in which our mental health and performance fuel each other and the right support is in place um, the better that that will be, but any minimum number has to be in a culture which takes mental health seriously. And you'll know from the physical health world that actually, uh, physical safety world, yeah, you know, that it was both the legislative change that drove some yes. change, but also a genuine commitment to improving the safety. And that that's what's so important that legislation is both a a driver for change, but also a marker of the minimum, and actually be looking at how we create that cultural change way beyond the legal change. And
0: that's why I think it'd be interesting to explore in a current company structure, where they have HR reporting systems and HR metrics that they look against, and likewise for health and safety, physical safety. Is there Are there some metrics that are readily available now, for example, where these reporting structures could be tweaked or a new vertical could be brought in that is then reviewed frequently, um, where you start to sort of provide a framework to an organisation to track this that therefore then drives the decision to invest in a bunch of MHFA training, for example?
1: Yeah, so I think we... The whole area around data, I think, is is really um, important and that we need to get better. And we know that some companies you know, do have data. So, if you look at Thames Water, for example, they know that they've got five times more in uh, mental health incidents or, or you know, um, gosh, what's the word? I can't think of the word anyway. Like reports. Yeah, for every one physical report, there are five mental health mm-hmm. reports. Now, they've been tracking that, and that's something that we're looking at you know, at the moment in terms of the data. And how we might do that because as you say we really need um, people to understand how to to make the case you know there's a there's a an economic case and Deloitte in their latest report showed that the cost of poor mental health to UK business is between 42 and 45 billion pounds that was up from 36 billion three years before in 2016 and that was before the pandemic. The Centre for Mental Health has estimated that 10 million more people will need help as a direct result of the pandemic and that's 8.5 million adults, 1.5 million children and young people. So the economic case is incredibly clear and, and the bit which I think is really important for businesses to to reflect on isn't just from absenteeism. It's actually from presenteeism. Mm-hmm. It's from people not disconnecting. It's from people you know, working when they should be on leave. And so that cost is perhaps not as obvious mm-hmm. to to quantify um, because you can see people there, but it's actually the, the presenteeism and the leaveism and the always on that, that forms a significant part of that cost. Mm-hmm. So. That's the economic cost. And then you've got the moral cost. Yeah, we've we've got the moral and human impact of not taking action, of people feeling as though they need to be at work when they actually shouldn't be. And people feeling as though they have to leave jobs because they don't believe that they've got a choice. And people feeling as though they can't connect into uh, sources of support for fear of of being judged and not getting the promotion so yeah there's such a compelling case for change and and the deloitte report also showed that every pound invested that there is five pounds return so yeah that's again a really you know important business metric but it is the combination of the economic case and the human and moral case which feels incredibly important because ultimately remember work should be good for us you know if we get it right work work is good for us and 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 thinking about that and then making sure we've got the systems and structures in place so it is genuinely good for us is the important part
0: very good very good Uh, i'm excited to see the change that comes in this area you've spoken openly on social media uh, recently about how important it is for for us to to talk about the, the process of dying uh, and when we are living through the loss of a loved one as opposed to, to bottling it up. And I think one of your most recent external roles that you mentioned um, help you're, you're leading in this area. Can you tell us a bit more about why this is important?
1: Sure. I guess if you just go back a couple of steps into the work that I have have done, I tend to, well, my core belief is that. When we talk about things, it is easier and it is better that we know that stigma and shame, you know, doesn't help anybody, mm-hmm. and that stigma and shame tends to lead to poor outcomes and, and to to poor health and and poor well being, and so death and dying feels to me as though it's another one of those areas that some people find difficult to talk about. But by not talking about it, we know that people can experience all sorts of, of trauma and loss and grief and bereavement, uh, I'm sorry, grief uh, through the process of bereavement, um, which they then try to face alone um, with the obvious impacts on, on, on well being and mental health. But I think for me it was the experience of my brother dying and then my mum dying in which I realised how challenging some people find it you know that when my brother died it was it was unexpected he was young and people would rather you know disconnect or cross the streets you know metaphorically cross the street rather than talk about it and that that wasn't because they're bad people but simply because people didn't know how to do yeah how to have the conversation because culture we've learned not to talk about it and then you know we know similarly where um, people are bereaved by suicide they often don't get the support and help that they need and that there is increased uh, risk amongst uh, those people are bereaved by suicide and and of them dying by suicide themselves and so we need to be really mindful about the support that we need and open in the cultures and and um, and create that sort of change so that we can help each other through what can be some of the most difficult times and I learned a lot through know yeah, mama, my brother of people also sharing wisdom and insight mm. that really helped. Okay. And that's it really, you know, that death is inevitable. Yeah. Dying is inevitable. Being bereaved is inevitable. Managing that, experiencing the loss and the grief, but also the joy that mm. the memories of those people can bring is incredibly um, important. And, As a culture, I think we can do much more to to experience that. So the Dying Matters campaign just last week had uh, a campaign called I Remember, which Mm -hmm. is sharing the memories of people uh, that died in in people's lives. And it was incredibly powerful to see those memories and those conversations. And we've got Dying Matters um, has got another Awareness Week next year, and there's a Grief Awareness Week um, which uh, is, is towards the end of, of of the calendar year. And through all of that, it's about trying to normalise conversations, a bit like we're talking about mental health. Let's, yeah, We know that uh, people experience mental illness, poor mental health. We know that people experience bereavement and grief. We yeah. know that people experience all sorts of things in their lives. And by talking about them and sharing them, um, then we utilise it, pass on the wisdom and help people to manage those situations as best as they possibly can mm, I
0: love it I love it that sort of normalizing the conversations so that when that lightning bolt in your life happens it it helps you sort of be prepared be ready for it but also getting the enjoyment out of what's you know be, being cognizant of of what time you might have left and how best to use it rather than skirting around the issue and never quite tackling it head on it doesn't really help the individual and it doesn't help the family or friends around them
1: one of the key points which a, a, a palliative care doctor dr catherine mannix is really clear about is that yeah we don't we, we're we so scared of saying the word death that the person who's dying may not feel able to say it and the people that love them and are around them don't feel able to say it and therefore things that could be said that can help people through grief through the bereavement are just left um yeah, I on, yeah what i learned with mum we had 3 or 4 months um of of knowing that she was dying was the actual content of the conversations didn't get any easier because it's difficult you know when you are talking about those things but the process of talking became easier if you take the deep breaths like yeah. okay we can do this and just because it isn't easy doesn't mean it isn't powerful and incredibly important
0: yeah Oh, absolutely So so you've mentioned a bit about construction as a sector that you've worked with. And I always view construction similar, if not a subset of engineering in in, in terms of who we work with. What what do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing engineering from your perspective over the coming years?
1: Specifically in relation to mental health? Yes. So so I, I guess it's like all sectors, isn't it? It's about facing up to and leaning into mm. the the cultural change which is which is needed and as you've said you know it is a male dominated uh, industry and so that can be without the evidence or data you know the starting what is the starting point for this conversation where is What's the the momentum and 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 the drive and the reason that you know, the construction uh, sector started this was because there was evidence about the disproportionately high rates of suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I guess the question really is what is what is the the burning platform? What is the thing that is going to kickstart? Uh, a, a serious conversation a, a, you know what is it that is going to drive people to believe that change um, is important and you know you talked earlier about the the statistics and the data from your report uh, in relation to both uh, suicide death by suicide but also suicidal thoughts and suicidal ideation and therefore yeah you know, those are It's that information which I think creates the conversations, creates the routes and pathways. From from my perspective, I think the the key thing is that it doesn't have to be, you don't have to have the perfect answer to start. And I think sometimes that people wait and think, have I got the silver bullet? We know there is no silver bullet. Have I got all the answers? Well, no, because we never start with all the answers. Have I got enough information to start, whether that's training whether it's a webinar a seminar uh, you know, a, a conversation within the business yes you know, all of that information is there is the evidence that it drives positive workplace culture yes so for me it's really about saying let's let's start let's build on what has already happened because there will be some companies and some work that has already happened what can yes. we learn that how do we build on it and, and how do we just take confidence that this is going to uh have have an impact uh in in the workplace on individuals on cultures and also then on, on outcomes and outcomes as well
0: very very good good advice there and I think your Thames water case study um could be a good one to to look into further so what are you looking forward to over the coming year?
1: Well, we've we've had quite an extraordinary time of it, haven't we? All of us, know, yeah, yeah. in various ways, shapes, or or forms. And and so, from mental health first aid England's um, perspective, we have got some uh, you know really exciting um, work lined up. We've got the campaign around people being able to take their whole selves to work. You know, mm-hmm. we've got uh, the, the 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 numbers that we're we're moving towards, and we've got some new new things which are not yet at sort of liberty to, to say what they are. But I think if you put that in against the backdrop, I think what I'm really excited about is that, you know, people are having these conversations, you know, that wasn't that long ago that there wouldn't have been podcasts like this, yeah, you know, in in engineering. And, and so we are slowly, you know, moving forward. We are making sure that that conversation um, continues. And so for me, the most important bit is, that we don't all revert to times gone by mm. you know, when, whenever something shifts or changes with the pandemic, that we keep on moving forward, that we don't say we want to get to where we were before, that we say actually it wasn't good enough before. So as we look to the future, we need to be better than we were previously. And I think that there's a critical mass of people and, and business leaders and and organisations that are able to make that a reality. So that's my that's my hope, is that we're not going to just put up with where we were before. We're going to say, actually, we need to stretch. We need to get better and really shift workplace cultures. So that's, that's my increasing hope. And I think that there is enough momentum now behind you know, workplace mental health for that to be a reality. And again, I think that that whole drive for change whether that's within lgbt communities whether that's around race equality whether that is around um gender equality uh, yeah my hope and is that we also will continue to make sure that we are addressing that because we know that oppression and inequality impacts negatively on mental health and and so it's on all of us yeah all of the time to be thinking yeah about yeah inequalities and oppression as we do in workplace mental health as well.
0: I think that is a really good place to end there. Thank you so much, Simon. I've really enjoyed uh, the, the chat we've had. Thank you so much for your
1: time today. Thanks very much.
0: You have been listening to the Equal Engineers podcast, Uncovering the diversity story behind leading engineers and those working with the profession, championing change. If you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice and get notified when a new episode goes live. Did you know that we also offer a full transcript on each of our podcast episodes? Check out our website equalengineers.com explore our wider training and development programs, our recruitment events, recognition awards, and case studies for how we are shaping the future of engineering. For now, thank you for listening, and please come back and join us on a future episode.